Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 164. So glad you could join me. Um, today's main guest is Robert Pinsky, former U.S. Poet Laureate. He'll be here in just a little bit with his new memoir, Jersey Breaks. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button, share, make sure you're subscribed, sign up, click the bell for notifications, leave reviews on iTunes, whatever you can do to help spread poetry around the interwebs would be much appreciated. Um, as always, we're going to start out with some Poets Respond, and um, we're going to have Michael Mayerhofer, a very a long, much-beloved veteran of Poets Respond and many other things too on Rattle, is here with a climate protesters throw soup over Van Gogh's sunflowers. So, um, hey, Michael, how you doing? Hey, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's great to see you. Um, it's been, I think, about a year ago you came to where I live, right, for, a, for yep. an event. And I uh, haven't seen you since, but it's been a long time having poems on Rattle. And we got a great one um, today, or for Sunday's poem. Um, well, thank you. Yeah. So, so do I explain what it's about? It was, the, it was the number one thing people were writing about this week, I think. It's such a poetic type news story. Um, do you want to explain what the poem was about? Well, it's kind of one of those weird things where, like, the more you peel back the onion layers, like, the more absurdity there is from, like, the actual protests, like, the the silliness of uh, protesting Van Gogh to to make a point about fossil fuels, did, like, that just didn't line up with a lot of people. But underlying that, there's the absurdity that we're facing this climate crisis in the first place and, like, the threat that poses to all of us, all of our art, and then, like, just the absurdity of like our mortality and all the stuff we're going to lose and yeah it was just like layer upon layer and i could feel like the madness increasing and like i had to put it all together to like exercise it in some way so yeah i mean it's a poem that braids several things together i'm um, just for anybody who didn't happen to see the news story which i think i mean it was such a big news story you know is it a, a, a good visual news story so it was on all the news media everywhere but but it's somebody um, as a protest through a soup, you know, tomato soup, I think, on the on a Van Gogh painting, the sunflower painting, and um, and of course there's a glass screen, which is interesting too, and and it generated so much outrage and sort of controversy, even though it didn't damage the painting at all. The painting is already protected, um, so it's a completely symbolic gesture. It took, I mean, I don't know how long it took to wash it off with Windex or whatever, but it probably wasn't a big deal. Um, and still, it, it sort of just generated a lot of interest and and. And, and commentary, including at least a dozen poems were submitted about it. Yeah. Um, and so, so how did you know how to start this poem? Well, it, this is pretty much autobiographical. So the other thing I've been hearing as teachers, that weird urban legend about teachers having kids use litter boxes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's been debunked like countless times, but I keep hearing that over and over and over again. And like, I'm, I'm on like this one, this one man mission to debunk urban legends. So I was kind of like dealing with that, and then this happened too, and it was just like more and more craziness every second. So I just kind of dived in. Yeah. So. Well, I'm glad you did because it's a great poem, as yours always are. They're always excellent. Uh, why don't you read it? Climate protesters throw soup over Van Gogh's sunflowers. Uh, whenever you're ready, go ahead. I'll put it up. Sure. Climate protesters throw soup over Van Gogh's sunflowers. For hours, I've been arguing with a friend who believes teachers are on a crusade to make children use litter boxes. When I hear about sunflowers bathed in soup to protest the use of fossil fuels. Last night, I kept picturing my brother's gaze before he died, like he could see the whole hospital ward melting, wavelengths collapsing into pinheads the way time does when you fly fast enough. 
I don't know how to keep you safe. Turns out Van Gogh made several paintings of sunflowers and pale vases, petals drooping like golden rain, like he felt he missed something. Sometimes it's easy to forget what the earth makes of our bones, way down deep, in vaults that never get locked. One day there will be no one left to explain how clay yields yellow ochre and the hair of wild beasts can be bristled into brushwork, how dust can be squeezed into stars. Yeah, excellent. That was Michael Mayerhofer, once again, with climate protesters throw soup over Van Gogh's sunflowers. A great poem, as, as yours always are, Michael. Thanks for sharing that for Poets Respond this week. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, take care. Okay, now we're going to go to a second Poets Respond poem before we get to uh, Robert Pinsky. And uh, Jake Marmer is here with Tuesday's poem, which is about um, the situation in Ukraine, which is seeming to, you know, to get more dire every minute. So here's um, Jake Marmer. Hey, Tim. Hey, Jake. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us and for sharing this other poem. Do you want to explain um, what you were writing about and, and how the poem came to be? Sure. Um, well, I guess insofar as a poem can be about anything, I, I think it's the experience of dealing with kind of a cognitive dissonance of living my life with my kids here in Los Angeles um, and, and just thinking about my family um, who live in Ukraine and kind of this this really intense feeling of being into realities at the same time a lot uh, of the time. And, you know, I have to tell you, uh, I feel very reluctant writing poems about it. I've never written poems about things that are on the headlines. It's not really like something that I've done. Uh, obviously, I'm a citizen of the world, but, but this is different. This is very personal. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if this is the right thing to do for, for me. I, I guess I won't know for a long time, but um, this is the reality as I'm intensely experiencing it. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, poetry is an important part of, of processing um, information and dealing with things psychologically and emotionally. And so it's important to write about the things that matter to us, I think. Um, and this is about, you know, your parents are in the Ukraine and... Um, and and the the rocket attacks are just continuing, I think, to this this day, right? So, is there any update on how they're doing? Are they doing okay still? Thank God, my folks are doing okay. They're in a more kind of central Ukraine space, mm -hmm. provincial place that uh, you know uh, it's been quieter than other uh, areas. But it's it's something, you know, I have cousins in in other cities, and it's something that I'm I'm, I'm thinking about every single day. Yeah. Um, well, why don't you read the poem, and then I have one question afterward, um, but no one's read it yet, so let's hear it first. Okay. It's called The Ant Has Feet. The ant has feet, and it keeps walking away from us, says Lev, as we trudge through the side trail that never seems to merge back to the main road. The end, it just disappears, says Aura, as we finally climb out of the shrub, shake out the dirt from our shoes, and take in. The site. Los Angeles, people vastness fused into shoreline, fades into fog or horizon or simply the end of the visible. I take the picture of the two of them smiling, thumbs up, sweaty faces, still so young and sanded halfway across the planet to my parents who don't speak the same language as my children, but read their smiles as a kind of insurance the world still exists. It's nighttime where they are. They respond immediately, awake to their own horizon, blurring at the edges of the TV, city after city covered by rocket fire all around. Yes, 
photos, anything to ask them without asking. If I refresh my screen enough times, can I be assured that I, when I put down my phone, their town will remain untouched in this latest volley of death? Thousands of miles, my short-circuiting universe, all of it, here. It's a loop, the trail, I mean. Our own feet marking the end where a beginning once was. Yeah, it's just a wonderful poem. Um, and, and it inspired, and, and the main thing that stands out is that, that phrase, um, which um, Lev says, um, um, the end has feet and it keeps walking away from us. And I had to Google that phrase to see, is that something that... Um, <laughs> was a cliche or something. I mean, it's such a beautiful phrase. And, um, um, and it's not, I mean, I, Google doesn't have never heard that phrase before. So um, yeah, is that just something that, that really did come out? And that was the where the poem started? Yeah, I mean, I, I write down a lot of things my kids say that just the way that they have with language and more playful things and jokes they're making or like bending language as they do. I'm, I'm just often... Um, in love with what they say and sometimes they make it into poems and and that just to me felt like like i heard it and i and i rolled it around in my head a few times just like this feels like a poem this would be a good way to to start a poem with mm -hmm. yeah yeah well i'm glad you did and that is just just such a memorable poem thanks so much for sharing that jake and, and thanks for being a guest today and, and really hope your parents stay safe given all that's going on right now may it be so yeah. thank you so much yeah thanks so much that was Jake Marmer with The End Has Feet. Uh, we're going to take a quick break now and go to our main guest, uh, Robert Pinsky. So just hang tight. Um, I'm going to put the splash screen here, put up some bumper music, and we'll be right back with Robert Pinsky. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. Like I mentioned, today's guest is Robert Pinsky. Uh, Robert Pinsky is the author of numerous books of poetry, including the Pulitzer Prize finalist, The Figured Wheel, which I have right there, and prose, including The Sounds of Poetry, which is the first book of, of uh, prose on poetry I ever read. Um, he served as United States Poet Laureate from 1997 to 2000, during which time he founded the wonderful favorite poem project. He's edited several anthologies, most recently The Book of Poetry for Hard Times. His most recent book is just published memoir Jersey Breaks, which is right here. And um, Pinsky teaches at Boston University and lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And here he is, Robert Pinsky. Hey, Robert, how are you doing? Hi, Tim. Doing fine. Yeah, it's great to see you. It's been, I don't know if you remember um, the interview we did like 15 years ago in a hotel yeah. somewhere in Los Angeles, I think it was. Um, yeah, but it's great to see you again. It's been a while. Yes, it has. Um, so do you want to start out with um, some of this memoir so we can talk about that? And we'll read poems, too. Um, why don't you start with a prologue? Okay. Uh, the prologue begins with a sentence. I don't name her, but I say a friend asked me. But it was my very dear friend. We had a memorial for Jill Neerum uh, yesterday. She Jill had a model life and a model death. She was advising, my she was a professional agent and editor, and she was to the last hours of her life in hospice. She was telling writers, send me a I'm too tired to read. Send me an audio that I can listen to of this thing you're working on. Anyway, Jill said this, and I'm quoting her in the first line. This is, she, it may be the best sentence in my book, and the first one is mostly by Jill. <laughs> Prologue. Given my background, a friend asked me, how is it 
I became a poet rather than a criminal or an optometrist. I could quibble. My father, Milford Pinsky, was an optician, not an optometrist, a common mistake. And it's true that his father, Dave Pinsky, was a criminal. But as my Aunt Thelma used to say, her pop was in the liquor business, and it happened to be during Prohibition. That was the era when it, uh, my Dave, my Zadie pop, as I called him, pursued the liquor business in our hometown, Long Branch, New Jersey. Trivial and significant, stupid and profound, like a family, oppressive and nurturing, like the larger world, seductive and treacherous. My feelings about the town are as confused as can be. My bedeviled patriotism, my need for the lofty outcast art of poetry. My C students, this distrust of worldly rewards, prizes, and punishments. The inward voice that spurs me to bring together disparate times, places, and things. That attraction to any mishmash. All that began in Long Branch. If I have a story to tell, it's how the failures and aspirations of a certain time and place led me to poetry. And I can tell you that the uh, jacket art is an authentic picture of the boardwalk in Long Branch, New Jersey in its heyday when I lived there. Yeah, and that was from uh, the prologue from Jersey Breaks, the new memoir just out from Norton, Becoming an American Poet, um, Jersey Breaks by Robert Pinsky. Um, so what was it that, that made you want to write a memoir? Um, was it something that you had in mind a long time and, and decided to finally do? No, it wasn't something I had in mind a long time. I, uh, like many, many Americans, I've become aware of uh, categories of people, new ways of reading ethnicities and races, uh, national politics that involves new kinds or resurgent divisions, the rise of fascism, uh, new kinds of nationalisms. And I was as bewildered as most of us are by this and interested in the history of it. And I started thinking about my hometown and my neighborhood. For a debut about this book, I talked at the Harvard bookstore, and I chose and was lucky to have, as the person I had a conversation with, not any poet or critic, uh, but the uh, tremendously eminent sociologist Orlando Patterson, who's written very important books about subjects like slavery, freedom, Hard to summarize Orlando. And uh, Orlando pointed out something I was sort of implying, and he made me more conscious of it. I grew up, I grew up in a very poor neighborhood that you could call mixed white and black, or that you might call a poor white neighborhood 
right on the adjoining a poor black neighborhood, uh, exactly across the street from the uh, house where my parents' apartment was, where I grew up, was the black doctor, Julius McKelvey. I'd see him once in a while in his three-piece suit. And he was at one end of Mammoth Avenue, across from uh, Rockwell Avenue. And I guess that, I didn't quite understand it. I guess that was the better end of Mammoth Avenue. At the other end was the Tally Ho Tavern. Mm-hmm. They say in the book, part of the legend of the Tally Ho is that it's where one of the patrons in a disagreement once bit off the finger of a policeman. Um, and I tell the story of my dad when I was seven years old, he got fired. The, uh, Dr. Weinberg, the optometrist my dad was working for as a craftsman and optician, uh, said, I have to let you go, Milford. I'm running for mayor. And, uh, it would be good for me to hire an Italian veteran. Hmm. And uh, he did, and it all worked out. My dad opened his own shop, and uh, after some hard years, did better. And that candor about the minority groups and uh, the imperfect, unstereotyped relations of groups so I didn't write the book thinking the word memoir. Mm-hmm. I know it's a, I respect retail a lot. I know that's the category that the book is sold under. The word I used to myself a lot was autobiography. Mm-hmm. And the subtitle, which Jill Nearham approved of, uh, was Becoming an American Poet. And I was more interested in that unlikely, light, beautiful, amazing life I've had, where I get paid way more than seems likely to talk to people about poetry. Yeah. Uh, it's there's something good in there about America. And then there's the question of do we really are we at all approaching a democratic culture or are we losing more and more grip on that? For a lot of people, contradiction in terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A it, democratic it's a... culture. And to have a, a democratic society or polity, I think you must have at least the idea of a democratic culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the book feels to me like a celebration of the concept of the melting pot. You know, which we used to talk about a lot, and we don't talk about as much anymore. But the way that so many people come together in one place, and, and the synergy, and the, the the vibrancy that comes out of that. I looked up the phrase. There was a play called "The Melting Pot." Oh, really? The initial performance in Washington D.C. was attended by President Theodore Roosevelt, who stood up and said, "Mr. Zangwill, that is a great play." as people applauded. It's not a great play. It's very touching to me. It's a play by a Jewish playwright named Israel Zangwill. And it is uh, 
a passionate, naive, alas, facile presentation of the of what I'll call, and I'm referred to in the book as Jewish universalism. And a lot of, um, I try to speak respectfully about different kinds of group identity. And there's a way in which there's a, certainly a strain in the history of Jews culturally, where their ally, far from being a unique identity, uh, has to do with the idea of the universal. Mm-hmm. And that idea in a very exaggerated, ultimately rather sterile form, is the theme of the play, The Melting Pot. Mm-hmm. I mean, after all, Emma Lazarus also is Jewish, who wrote the the lines on the Statue of Liberty that many uh, right-wing politicians now say, well, they're not, they're not part of our country. That's just some poem there. Mm-hmm. Uh, although for many other people... It extends to the Venezuelans. My my friend, the wonderful uh, writer, he's an American writer, but he grew up uh, in Jamaica. His family is Igbo. Uh, he says there are now more the immigration annually of people from Africa to the United States is greater than the horrible immigration of the Middle Passage during the slave trade years one of the changes in the country. And I don't have the knowledge or the learning or the skills to write about these things authoritatively the way Orlando Patterson can. So I try to think about my life story in those terms. As I say in the chapter about my dad, he went to college for a couple of weeks It was a night school that met in our same high school. And as he tells it, I mean, he was, my dad was a jock. He was, he was uh, voted best looking boy in his high school graduating class. And uh, he was in this composition class and he had to write a definition and wrote a definition of what is a gentleman. Wonderful in the context of American society that a gentleman is so much more a form of behavior compared to what a gentleman is in the country the language we're using came from. Mm-hmm. Gentleman was a rank, a status. And my father said in his essay, as he tells it, that a gentleman is someone who thinks more about the uh, the well-being of other people than his own. Yeah. And the professor in that night school class said, which one is Milford Pinsky? I would like to talk to you after class. And the guy accused my dad of plagiarism. He asked my dad, where did you copy that from? Uh (laughs) And Milford said, I didn't copy it. I wrote it. And the guy made it clear he thought he was lying. And as my father tells it, that's why he never went back. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I loved, I mean, you know, being a fan of your work and your perspective on poetry, it was fascinating to read the book and to see where some of that came from, which I didn't know through the, through jazz and playing the horn. Um, and, and also just your upbringing, um, in, and, um, in New Jersey. 
And and I, one thing, I was trying to find the chapter on it, because I think we should read another little excerpt. But um, do you remember which chapter it is where you talk about the way that um, 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 North Broadway and South Broadway, like you could t- either take the North, so- you could take yeah. North Broadway or yeah. South Broadway, but they end up in the same place. <laughs> that was such a yeah. memorable line. Yeah. There's now, there's now a, a little park where North Broadway and South Broadway divide mm-hmm. and go to the ocean. And they actually quote, the, there's a little stone there quoting a poem by me. <laughs> oh, really? I should take my kids there so they'd be more impressed by me. Um, let me, I think I can probably find that uh, passage you're referring to. Um, yeah, here I am. Uh, which page is it? I'm very early on, I'm on page, I think it's on page four. Oh, that's it? Okay. Uh, a personal landmark for me, one of the main junkyards in Long Branch, used to belong to a man named, as if by Charles Dickens, Ash. I went to Izzy Ash's junkyard in the summer of 1962 to buy a used fuel pump for a 1950 Dodge convertible, I would drive to Palo Alto, California. I was going to graduate school at Stanford. Mr. Ash took in this information as he grunted, tugging at a long-handled wrench to loosen the part I needed from a wrecked coronet. I told Mr. Ash I was going to graduate school, not that I was going to be a writer or a poet. As it happens, Mr. Ash knew more than you might think about graduate school. And I had already been embarrassed earlier that summer by local people knowing I was or meant to be a writer. A Long Branch boy named Danny Pingator was having a little success under another name as a TV actor. The absurdity of my ambition that I was carrying west with me got clear when Danny phoned me. I didn't really know him. He was at least five years older than me, but I knew his brother, Anthony. Their mother ran into my mother in a store while Danny was in Long Branch, part of July, so he knew my phone number. Robert, this is Danny Pingator. Your mother says you're going out to California to be a writer. There's something I need to tell you. Don't go. What? Don't go, Robert. I mean it. I know a lot of writers in L.A. They say this is the worst year ever. Nobody is doing hour-long shows anymore. It's all half hour. Most of the writers already out there can't find work. So I just told Mr. Ash I was going to Stanford to graduate school. In Izzy Ash's class at Long Branch High School, There were two outstanding students, both from Jewish families, both went to Harvard. Mike Abrams and Barry Green were two brilliant, ambitious Long Branch boys whose stories still meant something to Mr. Ash. He had his generation's respect for what performing well in high school could do for somebody whose family had no money or power. So he told me the story of Mike and Barry. Mike Abrams went from Harvard College to graduate school and became a famous professor 
the author of a famous book, The Mirror and the Lamp, a study of two romantic images for poetry. I had not exactly read the book, but I had it on good authority that it was very good. I eventually did read it, and it is. The other Harvard boy in that same high school class as M.H. Abrams was Barry Green, who went on to become a rich lawyer, but sadly, as Mr. Ash told me the story he knew I knew, things took a bad turn for Barry Green. In the course of his climb to success, Barry got in deep with the mob, including a deal that involved selling orange peels to the government for the production of synthetic sugar. The words synthetic sugar added the authority of specificity to our local legend of a deal saturated in fraud, bribery, even when you think about it, despoiling the United States Treasury in wartime. The dukes and generals of the mob, protecting the myth of their patriotism, decided that Barry Green would have to go to prison. And so he did. The unthinkable alternative was agreeing to testify with the likelihood or certainty of sudden disappearance. Barry's wife and his two daughters, attractive girls who took elocution lessons, the younger one, the first girl in town to play little league baseball, they were taken care of by the dukes and generals of the mob. Meanwhile, the story concluded, Mike Abrams continued the beautiful life of an honored professor at Cornell University, an Ivy League college in a class with Harvard itself, as Mr. Ash said, sighing emphatically. He knew from his daughter, Phyllis, my classmate, that I had not been a good student in high school. Retelling the legend of Mike and Barry was his way of indicating respect for my apparent new seriousness. Wiping his head with his forearm, Mr. Ash finished with a moral, expressed by an example from our shared provincial landscape. Yes, Robert, he said, there's two different paths in life. It's just like North Broadway and South Broadway. Broadway's two forks, North and South, form a Y just a couple of blocks from the beachfront log boardwalk. I nodded solemnly at Mr. Ash's moral, his allegory of those two streets as two paths in life. At the same time, I was thinking that the two paths were pretty much identical. Mr. Ash and I both knew quite well that North Broadway and South Broadway, not notably different from one another, extended to arrive one long block apart at exactly the same place the Atlantic Ocean. Maybe the point of his story was just the reality of shared knowledge that he and I and the other people in our community all knew the same streets and the same stories. Maybe Mr. Ash was thinking about my probably outliving him and about my passage into a future as large and mysterious as the ocean itself. California, books, poetry. He wanted to speak to me 
as the voice of the past addressing the future. And that was another passage from Jersey Breaks, Robert Pinsky's newest book uh, on becoming an American poet. And, and what I found so fascinating about that section is that the parallel to um, Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken, you know, because we all think, you know, the two paths diverge in a wood, and yet they look rather the same, and there's really no difference between which path you take. And um, and I, I feel like that, like, symbolically represents the, the story that you're telling in this book and in your career, which is that poetry is such a part of, of humanity that it's in all of us. It's not this elite thing that we need to have a degree to appreciate. It's something that, you know, with your favorite poem project that, um, you know, so many people have a favorite poem. There's an anthology of favorite poems in any room is one of the things you say. And that poetry is so central to existence and that we can have these same, these same stories and experiences, whether or not we're reading poetry or whether we're doing something else. So, so can you speak a little bit about that, about, about poetry's place in American culture? The story of Mr. Ash is partly a tribute to the American public school system. He and my father and mother and I, my aunts and uncles, his son and daughter, Mr. Ashes, uh, the cops, the policemen I saw, the store owners, everybody I saw all day went to Long Branch High School. And it was frequent that they would say, you get Miss Davis for English, you're going to have to work. <laughs> the mailman might say that to me. The pharmacist might say that to me. And uh, she was a great English teacher. And the aspiration of public schools, the aspiration to possibly change within one generation to create American culture, American citizenship from immigrants, including the great wave of migration that now has been recognized of black people from the South, African descent people descended from enslaved Africans, uh, also a part of that process. And Orlando, in that uh, discussion of my book, picked up on the fact that, in fact, on Monmouth Avenue, the more or less Black Street, there are Jewish junkyards, two Jewish junkyards, so that it was natural for me to play with Black kids and Jewish kids from that neighborhood up to a certain age. Those first early five or six post-war years it was right before redlining got invented by the real estate industry. Mm -hmm. So that I had what turns out to be an unusual experience where I not only looked out the window of my where we lived and saw black people, I then went out there and I was among them. Uh, that was a very uncharacteristic, and I don't want to idealize it. Mm -hmm. One of the things Dr. McKelvey, I learned later, was active in early years of the NAACP. One of the things that he failed but tried to integrate was, it's mentioned in that section I read, the Atlantic Ocean mm -hmm. was segregated. And the many beaches in Long Branch along the ocean, only one could black people swim in. So I'm not saying it was paradise. And uh, 
very, very young age, I learned epithets for different kinds of uh, bigotry. And, but there also was this cultural interchange. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm trying to tell that story truthfully in this book, The Videos in the Favorite Poem Project. I want to emphasize how excellent they are about poetry. It's not, it's not inferior to some videos that involve poets or literary critics. The Jamaican immigrant who reads the Sylvia Plath poem has cogent things to say about it. He reads it as well as you can imagine reading a poem. The uh, glassblower who reads a Frank O'Hara poem understands the nature of the Frank O'Hara poem very well, better than most PhD students could. And he conveys it in his voice and in what he says. The Cambodian American high school kid applies Langston Hughes's poem, uh, Minstrel Man, to her family's experience of Cambodia and the Pol Pot regime. Uh, so the content and the understanding of poetry is at a very high level. And it expresses my American patriotism. Mm -hmm. The idea that Americans are mostly yahoos and fools, and they don't know anything about things like poetry, I can disprove it with those videos. I didn't invent the people. They're not actors. Yeah. And they, the poems they read better than a typical actor would. So um, what was it that, that gave you permission to be a poet, like to yourself? Um, well, you know, you, you mentioned um, that... Um, in the book that maybe a, an optician, um, what is it, what your dad was, an, an optician and not an optometrist. Yes. Very good. Um, or a criminal was, um, was maybe more, more likely. Um, so what was it that, what is it that you get your whole life that you've gotten out of poetry that made it worth dedicating your whole life for? There's something about the sounds of words. I believe that music and poetry and dance are not ornamental, beautiful things on the fringes of human intelligence. I believe that the very center, mm -hmm. the core of human intelligence, and at the center of human uh, community and cooperation, they're basic. And two things got me through uh, a somewhat uh, failure-ridden uh, first uh, junior high school, high school years. One was music. My identity was saxophone player, same high school as my dad, where he was voted best looking boy, I was voted most musical boy. <laughs> he deserves his title more than I deserve mine. But the horn gave me an identity, I earned money playing it, and uh, it helped keep me together. And it was a model for poetry. And for some reason, from the time I can remember, I must have done it in my crib. I thought about the sounds of words. I didn't know what to do with that skill or interest. It seemed like a, something to hide. It was like a tick, a nervous tick. I was known to be expert at things like making up uh, uh, parody words to popular songs. Leprosy, da 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 da, leprosy. There goes my eyeball into your highball, etc. Pepsi Cola is the drink to pour down the kitchen sink, all of that uh, jingles. And I loved comedy. 
I loved music. And they prepared me for, I mean, my mother had, uh, we had Stevenson's Gardener verses in the house and uh, um, kids' poem. There was a little bit of poetry in the house, but it was really when I went to uh, Rutgers, I was in an honor section of composition taught by uh, the brilliant snob, Paul Fussell. Fussell wrote about his war experiences that he was grateful for basic training because it was the first time in his life that he met people who worked for a living. It was a new experience for Paul. And uh, his experience as a frightened, inept leader of an infantry platoon helped very much by the working-class sergeant who was older than him and a better soldier than him. That sergeant to whom this book, The Great War, is dedicated, died in the same shelling that wounded Fussell in his back. And Fussell tells about his gratitude and uh, a kind of shameful memory of the men who were in his, he commanded, who died. And he tells about waking up They've gone to sleep at night in their sleeping bags. He wakes up, there are these objects all around him, dead German boys, he uses the word boys. And I'm convinced that Fussell at Rutgers, the state university, did a good job of teaching me and Henry Dumas and Robert Manicus and Peter Nigerian and the other ethnically various working class state university boys who were also very smart. He enjoyed teasing us, making us compete, and teaching us a lot. And I think it was related to his war. I had no idea at the time, but I think it had a lot to do with his war experience. Mm -hmm. He remained a snob but he used it to good purpose in teaching us. Mm -hmm. So I'll use the saxophone and that puzzle uh, class as important first steps in that unlikely process of becoming an American poet. Yeah. Uh, well, you included some poems too, and I want to make sure we read a few. Do you want to read uh, one of the ones you sent? Uh, sure. Any one in particular? Um, whichever you'd like. Um, I summarized the first here, which I loved. Okay. That'll be easy for me. I probably should look it up, but I think I can do it without having to look it up. Samurai song. When I had no roof, I made audacity my roof. When I had no supper, my eyes dined. When I had no eyes, I listened. When I had no ears, I waited. When I had no thought, I waited. When I had no friend, I made quiet my friend. When I had no enemy, I opposed my body. When I had no father, I made care my father. 
When I had no mother, I embraced order. When I have no means, fortune is my means. When I have nothing, death will be my fortune. I've screwed this up about as badly as a person can. <laughs> it's close. It's just mixed up a little. The order. When I had no temple, I made my voice my temple. I have no priest. My tongue is my choir. Need is my tactic. Detachment is my strategy. When I had no lover, I courted. <laughs> When I had no lover, I courted my sleep. It would be impossible to screw anything up more than the screwed up. <laughs> well, it was actually, was in the wrong all order. stanzas were there. They're just out of order. And fascinatingly, it works just as well in that order. Um, it's, a, it's an old jazz musician's principle. Mm -hmm. You keep playing. <laughs> yeah, well, I wanted to talk just, about that. because I Just love... keep playing as though you know what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> and it works out. Um, so I, I love, um, you know, The Sound of Poetry is, I think, the best book on poetry, honestly. And um, and I love seeing where all that philosophy came from through the horn and through the saxophone. Um, and I love some phrases in this um, in this uh, memoir that you wrote. So so you say that, that you um, believe in putting the music above um, the meaning and I love that concept because it is, that's the way we generate art is by not being like bound to what we intend to write, but letting things and letting, letting whatever happens come to be. So can you speak yeah. about that, about how the, the sound, it, it creates meaning on its own, like almost as if it's not you, it's not intentional. It comes out spontaneously. There's a certain kind of toddler, maybe most toddlers before the language is really mastered. The child has mastered certain melodies of speech. So there's a guest at the door, and the guest comes in. The child goes, and if the child is wants something hasn't got yet, and I do still work with musicians sometimes. And the wonderful reed player and vocalist, Stan Strickland, has a question he asks people. He says, everybody knows that uh, all music is composed of uh, rhythm, harmony, and melody. That's everything in music. Mm -hmm. Rhythm, harmony, and melody. Well, which do you think came first? Nearly everybody says, as I did, rhythm, oh, the heart beating. Hmm. Stan says, no, I, I think it's melody. Hmm. My dog can't keep time, but he, he has the song of being hungry. He has the song of being worried, and same with infants. And it goes very, very deep. Mm -hmm. And... The animal has pathetic claws and teeth for weapons. Its fur is patchy. It has the art of communicating with its companions mm -hmm. and its ancestors and descendants. And a lot of that is by developing song, poetry, dance. Mm -hmm. 
we know how to communicate. Mm -hmm. And God knows we do horrible things with that gift of communication. But it's absolutely fundamental. And as I say in the book, poetry is an art of the body and the mind mm -hmm. in that order. Yeah, yeah. That if to lack meaning is bad, to lack music is worse, hmm. in my opinion. It goes nowhere. And uh, at least there'll be some imagining. And it's impossible to have utter meaninglessness, just as meaning is never pure. Uh, if you make up nonsense syllables, flap creminin de fin de gosterfork, uh, some sound more like nouns, some like adjectives and verbs, and it's usually express, expressing something. Gorp, in fact, is a word. Hmm. It's a thing you uh, uh, trail mix. And um, one of the most popular poems in, in the English language is Jabberwocky. He originally published just one stanza, wrote one stanza, and he published it with the title Fragment of uh, Old English Poetry. Oh, really? I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there's always a little nonsense in anything you say, and there's always a little meaning, no matter how much you may be trying to avoid it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Um, let's hear another poem. Um, sure. Maybe I'll actually read it this time. <laughs> Not try to. I, I think maybe "Ode to Meaning" would be a perfect poem for this moment. Yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> that's very good. And. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I should read Ode to Meaning, uh, partly, partly because it's so related to autobiography. As I say in the poem, uh, as I say in the book, in the uh, memoir, uh, my family was not exactly orderly. We were very mixed up in many ways. Trying to find the bloody palm. I might as well call it up. My is it in? Is it in this? Um, I could look really quick. I can't remember. Yeah, I don't remember either. Honestly, I don't think it is. I think it's in here. And uh, we'll find it. I'll call it up in my computer. Yeah, that'd be good. You sent them to me, so you can look up the email. It might be the quickest yeah, way. I'll, I'll find it right now. Okay. I look in poems, and here is... You just have a folder on your computer called poems? How many, how many uh, poems? I have one are... poetry, have one called poems, poetries by great poets. Uh-huh. And... Uh, Anyway, I'll read the poem. Yeah, how, how many? I'm curious though. How many poems do you have in your poem folder? Yeah. Does it say at the bottom? I sometimes print out the file poetry. Mm -hmm. These poems, not by me, that are important to me. And uh, yeah, <laughs> there it is. So that's. Uh, I don't have to number the pages; they're alphabetical, but it's quite a few. Mm -hmm. And I probably need to print out again soon. Ode to Meaning. Dire one. I'll, I'll continue that preface. 
that to me, people would say the family was so boring. We had the same meal every day of the week was and sat down at the same time in the same chairs. I used to think, oh, that's so beautiful. We weren't like that. The idea of meaning and order is somewhat exotic to me. Ode to meaning, dire one and desired one, savior, sentencer. In an old allegory, you would carry a chained alphabet of tokens, unk, badge, cross, dragon, engraved figure guarding hallowed intaglio, jasper kinema of legendary mind, naked omphalos pierced by quills of rhyme or sense, Torah-like, unborn vein of will, xenophile yearning out of zero. Untrusting, I court you. Wavering, I seek your face. I read that Crusoe's knife reeked of you, that to defile you, the soldier makes the rabbi spit on the Torah. I'll drown my book, says Shakespeare. Drowned Walker, revenant. After my mother fell on her head, she became more than ever your sworn enemy. She spoke sometimes like a poet or critic of 40 years later. Or she spoke of the world as Thersites spoke of the heroes. Quote, I think they have swallowed one another. I would laugh at that miracle. You also in the laughter, warrior angel, your helmet the zodiac, rocket plumed, your spear the beggar's finger pointing to the mouth your heel planted on the serpent formulation, your face of vapor, the wreath of cigarette smoke crowning Bogart as he winces through it, you not in the words, not even between the words, but a torsion, a cleaving, cleavage, a stirring, you stirring even in the Arctic ice, even at the dark ocean floor, even in the cellular flesh of a stone, gas, Gossamer. My poker friends question your presence in a poem by me, passing the magazine one to another like apes with an oyster. Not the stone and not the words. You like a veil over my friend Arthur's headstone, the passage from Proverbs Arthur chose while he was too ill to teach and still well enough to read. Quote, I was beside the master craftsman, delighting him day after day, ever at play in his presence. You, a soothing veil of distraction, playing over dying Arthur, playing in the hospital, thumbing his Bible, fuzzy from medication, ever courting your presence, and you, the prognosis, you in the cough. Gesture, when is your spur, your cloud? You in the airport rituals of greeting and parting. Indicter, who is your claimant? Bell at the gate, spiderweb iron bridge, cloak, video, aroma, rue. What is your elected silence? Where was your seed? What is imagination? What is imagination but your lost child born to give birth to you? dire one, desired one, 
savior, sentencer, absence, or presence ever at play. Let those scorn you who never starved in your dearth. If I dare to disparage your harp of shadows, I taste wormwood and motor oil. I pour ashes on my head. You are the wound. You be the medicine. And that was Robert Pinsky reading Ode to Meaning, a great poem um, as an example of, of your style. In the, in the uh, memoir, you describe, um, you describe it as um, your style of writing is the way jazz returns to a theme. And it's very apparent there that the way that you never, from one phrase to the next, you never know where you're going in your poems. What is the, the composition process like? Is it reading out loud and, and pushing the poem further and further? Um, is it revision involved in that? How, how do you go about approaching a poem? I do write with my voice. Mm-hmm. And it is like a conversation. And I do talk to myself a lot all day long. Uh, I have a habit of speaking to myself and of speaking. And it certainly is influenced by my love of jazz. And in real, if you're really playing jazz, it's at least a little bit different every time. Even if it's a solo that you're famous for and you've played many, many different times, it has to be different every time if you're feeling it. Mm-hmm. And if you're listening to the other musicians, I've done some work with the uh, tremendous young piano player, Vijay Iyer. And Vijay takes this very far. He and his sidemen don't even make eye contact Everything they speak to one another is said with the music, with their instruments. I mean, most of the musicians I've worked with, there's a lot of eye contact and encouragement and even speaking to one another. Oh, yeah, do it again. Uh Uh, But the process for me is reading with my ears what I just said. Mm -hmm. So dire one leads to desired one. I think about meaning it is dire and is desired. And savior made me think of sentencer. And it's like noodling at a piano or playing with clay. The physical material tells you what you're feeling and thinking. You sit down at the piano and you don't know how energized you are or how lethargic you are, but you just bong a few chords and you try something in the melody above the chord and you find out something about what you're thinking. Same if you draw or you model clay. And I have learned that the melodies of the sentences and the harmonies of the vowels and consonants will tell me what I need to do. Do you ever have trouble in that you um, find yourself you know, making yourself go in a certain direction with a poem then? Like, do you, do you find your, like, and um, I always say that, that um, Zen and the Art of Archery is uh, one of the best books on writing, actually, because it's about letting go and not letting your consciousness get in the way. And it, there's one line that says, you have the problem, your problem is that you have too much willful will. And I always think of what the way that willful will gets in the way 
of, um, of artists is they make art. Like your idea of what you want to become can get in the way of, of that spontaneous natural jazz aspect. Do you ever have a problem with that? Always. Hmm. Always a problem. And I think that what you're saying is true. And then I need to add the reservation that you never can conclude that there might be something good in the conflict. Interesting, yeah. So that struggle between what you're identifying as your willful will and what you're identifying as something more intuitive and bodily, they may have a conflict. Their argument or they're doing the dozens with one another may lead to something better than either one. Hmm. So the conflict and the problem is even greater than any way you can describe it. Because if you think you have the solution, that then becomes part of the problem too. So you have to always be ready to hear the conflict. Oh, that's great. That was a, a mind-blowing little clip there. Yeah, I never thought of it that way. Thanks for saying that, Robert. Um, so uh, there's a question from the audience. If anybody has any questions for Robert Pinsky, this is your opportunity. Um, Dick Westheimer has one already, he, he, and it's in line with what we're talking about here. He says, given that improvisational drafting style, what happens for you in revision? Um, is revision a similar process? How does, how does revising poems go since it's so improv improvisational and jazz-like in its creation? Like so many questions about writing and art, all of the above. Yeah. If you if you try to do the poem from memory, the poem you've been working on all day, if you put out the light and you try to do it from memory before you fall asleep, sometimes the part where you can't remember it anymore is telling you that's where it needs to get done. Sometimes you need to read it like a lawyer or a literary critic. You can't hold yourself above saying, what the fuck are you writing about? What do you mean here? What is this? And you read sometimes like a newspaper editor. You can't dismiss the testimony of Joan Didion or Anton Chekhov or Ernest Hemingway that they learned a lot about writing by having a word limit or needing to write something that would be interesting in a magazine. Mm. So it is all of the above in that, yes, you have to listen to run your fingers over it as though you were sandpapering something. Then you also need to treat it like you're a newspaper editor and you asked for 600 words and somebody wrote 840. Say, no, get it down to 600. Hmm. Yeah. All of those, what you're experimenting, I mean, wait, trying to write a good poem, which is difficult. It's like you're drowning, and anything that floats by, if it's floating, you grab it. So it might be a revision for sound, it might be a revision for sense, but you have to know you want to survive, hmm. and you have to be alert for anything that floats. Wow, that's great. Um, let's hear, let's do another poem, and then we'll have a question or two, and then one last poem. So the penultimate poem. I've been so bad about finding poems. <laughs> uh, oh, why don't you just pick the first one that comes up? That's fine, too. Okay, here's rhyme. Rhyme. Air and instrument of the tongue. The tongue and instrument of the body. 
the body and instrument of spirit, the spirit of being of the air. Each bird the medium of its song, each song a world, a containment, like a hotel room ready for one us guests who inherit our compartment of time there. In the Joseph Cornell box among ephemera as its element, the preserved bird, a study in spontaneous elegy, the parrot, art, mortal in its cornered sphere. Each room a stanza, rung in a laddered filament, clambered by all us unsteady chambered voices that share it, each one reciting, I too was here. I too was here in a room, a rhyme, a song, in the box, in books, each element an instrument, the body still straining to parrot the spirit of being of the air. Yeah, wonderful. That was Rhyme, again, by Robert Pinsky. Um, let's see. So um we have any other questions? Um, the one thing that I noticed um, was the shirt is such a wonderful poem. Um, you know, everybody is loves that poem. And uh, it's it's one of the most iconic poems ever written, and and some of the quotes are stitched from newspaper articles, and and yes. the way that they that that comes together that collage of um, new content with the old content and the mixing and the matching. How much of your poetry does that? Like how much is sampling and kind of mixing and coming up with new work? It's not often that deliberate. Uh, sometimes, often, you'll sample without knowing you're sampling. You write a line of somebody unlikely like Dylan Thomas or uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay, and then you'll realize at some point it was borrowed, or it's from prose. I'm always afraid I'm going to write something from uh, uh, Cather's uh, Song of the Lark or from uh, uh, Faulkner's uh, uh, As I Lay Dying will suddenly be in in my poem. Um, In shirt. There was that wonderful book, The Invention of Tradition by Hobsbawm, mm-hmm. saying that all the English stuff, including the kilt, the regalia of the king or queen, the coronation, it all pretends to be ancient, and it's all basically 19th century prom- promotional material. Mm-hmm. It's advertising. Yeah. And uh, I had that, and I did have... Uh, my teacher, Irving Howe's World of Our Fathers. And it may be that a lot of the mythology of that triangle shirtwaist fire was invented by one newspaper reporter. So um, all those voices get in there. And frankly, I feel like they're held together by the tune, mm-hmm. held together by the fact that it's it's pretty much iambic pentameter. It's loose blank verse. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, I'm the pentameter, the pentameter, less of Shakespeare than, say, Wallace Stevens' Sunday morning. That pentameter puts together all those different uh, perspectives. Mm-hmm. Well, um, people are asking for the poem now. Would you mind reading that, the shirt? Sure, sure. Shirt, the back, the yoke, 
the yardage. Lapped seams, the nearly invisible stitches along the collar turned in a sweatshop by Koreans or Malaysians, gossiping over tea and noodles on their break, or talking money or politics, while one fitted this arm piece with its overseam to the band of cuff I buttoned at my wrist. The presser, the cutter, the ringer, the mangle, the needle, the union, the treadle, the bobbin, the code, the infamous blaze at the Triangle Factory in 1911. 146 died in the flames on the ninth floor. No hydrants, no fire escapes. The witness in a building across the street who watched how a young man helped a girl to step up to the windowsill, then held her out away from the masonry wall and let her drop and then another, as if he were helping them up to enter a streetcar and not eternity. A third, before he dropped her, put her arms around his neck and kissed him. Then he held her into space and dropped her. Almost at once, he stepped to the sill himself. His jacket flared and fluttered up from his shirt as he came down, air filling up the legs of his gray trousers, like Hart Crane's bedlamite, shrill shirt ballooning. Wonderful, how the pattern matches perfectly across the placket and over the twin bar-tacked corners of both pockets, like a strict rhyme or a major chord. Prints, plaids, checks, houndstooth, Tattersall, Madras, the clan tartans invented by mill owners, inspired by the hoax of Ashen to control their savage Scottish workers, tamed by a fabricated heraldry. McGregor, Bailey, McMartin, the kilt devised for workers to wear among the dusty, clattering looms. Weavers, carters, spinners, the loader, the docker, the navvy, the planter, the picker, the sorter sweating at her machine in a litter of cotton as slaves in calico head rags sweated in fields. George Herbert, your descendant is a black lady in South Carolina. Her name is Irma, and she inspected my shirt. Its color and feel and its clean smell have satisfied both her and me. We have culled its cost and quality down to the buttons of simulated bone, the buttonholes, the sizing, the facing, the characters printed in black on neckband and tail, the shape, the label, the labor, the color, the shade, the shirt. And that was, of course, Shirt by Robert Pinsky. And it's it's just fascinating to me to read that poem because that was the literally the moment I fell in love with poetry <laughs> was uh, the lists in that poem. I was uh, a freshman science major, molecular biology major in um, James Longenbach's class at the University of Rochester. And I remember that it, that um, the ringer, the mangle, the needle, the union, just the sounds and the joy and the sounds of language in that poem are really what made me fall in love with poetry. And I might not be here if you didn't write that poem, which is such a strange thing to say, but um, it's sure, actually true. I sure hope you realize how, how very happy that makes me. Thank you. 
Yeah, well, thank you for writing. I mean, it was just, it's just uh, one of those moments in my life that just the, the love of languages is so pure there. Um, we have one question. It's just a great question from Cindy Gore. Um, and maybe we'll, we'll end on that and let you go maybe with one more poem. But, um, but Cindy asks, um, what is the biggest difference in your poetic interest now compared to when you were first published? And that's an interesting idea, your poetic interest, which is an interesting way to phrase that, Cindy. It is a great question. I don't have a great answer. There's a thirst to do something new. Hmm. Feeling that you need to do something that you haven't done yet and that you'll get at emotions you know you have, but you haven't done them yet. And I am nearing finishing a book of poems. And I hope it has a subject. I'm... I would like to write a book that was as passionate and crazy and boundless as as anything, as William Blake, and that represented the spirit of moderate good sense and a liberate sensibility. I would like to write something that would express the kind of uh, traditional East Coast sensible middle-class person that was freakish and that was not was not homiletic or boring and uh, i'd love to say i have it just right best i can say is i feel like sometimes i'm on the trail uh-huh that's great um well i it is over time but if you don't mind i can't leave without asking one more poem can you do one more Okay, I'll try to make it a fairly short one uh, since we're over time. Um, I think one of the best things I ever wrote is a kind of a translation. I subtitle it uh, After Kavafi. And uh, I think sometimes in translation, you get lucky with the sounds of words. It's Kavafi's poem, An Old Man. Kavafi, by the way, a young man when he wrote it, but a young man in the closet afraid of becoming this old man and i'm just i just am proud of how i did the form an old man after kavafi back in a corner alone in the clatter and babble an old man sits with his head bent over a table and his newspaper in front of him in the cafe sour with old age he ponders a dreary truth how little he enjoyed the years when he had youth, good looks, and strength, and clever things to say. He knows he's quite old now. He feels it. He sees it. And yet the time when he was young seems, was it yesterday? How quickly, how quickly it slipped away. Now he sees how discretion has betrayed him and how stupidly he let the liar persuade him with phrases. Tomorrow, there's plenty of time, someday. He recalls the pull of impulses he suppressed, the joy he sacrificed. Every chance he lost ridicules his brainless prudence a different way. But all these thoughts and memories have made the old man dizzy. He falls asleep, his head 
resting on the table in the noisy cafe. And that was an old man after Cavafy. And that's too from The Figured Wheel, which is um, one of the books that's on my permanent always-take-it-out shelf in my office. Um, Robert Pinsky, thanks so much for being a guest. It's been a pleasure to talk to you again, um, and great to see you. And congratulations on your new book, which I should... Um, where I put it? Uh, the new book is Jersey Breaks, uh, which you can get from Norton Press. Uh, Robert, thanks so much again for being a guest. It's just, it has been a Truly pleasure. Truly a pleasure. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, thanks a lot. Okay, so long. Yeah, that was Robert Pinsky, and his newest book, of course, is Jersey Breaks. Um, Robert Pinsky was a poet laureate back about 2000, and uh, here's this wonderful book, um, Jersey Breaks, which you can pick up from Norton. Of course, Robert Pinsky's uh, website is um, robertpinskypoet.com, so check out all of Robert's work there. And the newest book, of course, is Jersey Breaks, his memoir. Now, we're going to take a quick break and go to our... Um, open lines and um our open lines let me show you how to do it so um first email your poem if you'd like to share anything if you'd like to stay if you'd like to share, share nothing and just you know listen sit where you are but if you would like to share a poem um email it first to open mic that's open mic at rattle.com so i can show it on the screen as we were showing robert's poems before and then i will take the zoom link um, that we've been using and put it in the chat messages on youtube and facebook and you can join us on Zoom to share a poem. Um, email it first, and then join us on Zoom. Otherwise, just sit tight right where you are, and I'll be right back with some open lines. Talk to you in a minute. Bye. And we are back. Thanks so much for your patience. Um, I forgot that I did the transition wrong, because we're going to go to... It's not like part of the open lines. It's the bonus poet for the day and carrie gunter seymour who was on rattlecast i think maybe number 48 we interviewed her in issue number 62 uh, for the appalachian poets issue she has a new book um, alone in the house of my heart which i'll put on screen right here alone in the house of my heart is gary carrie gunter um, gunter seymour's newest book and we have carrie on the line to share a little bit about her new book so hey carrie how you doing hey i am great it's great to see you again and uh, and let me get this thing switched. I, I meant to um, do this before I, I did the open lines transition, and I just am so used to not having an extra guest that I forgot. <laughs> but you know we'll, what? Uh, I can hardly function after listening to Robert Pinsky. I don't know how you're dealing at all. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just great. And really, I mean, the truth is that he is it, it, that one poem, and, and seeing him, he, I think it was the first poetry reading I went to. Um, you know, it was one of those things where we did his book and then he came, you know, for some reading series at the U of R. And I remember sitting in the library there in the back, kind of like I had to go, but I loved, I loved it anyway. And then sitting at just daydreaming and listening to the sounds of those words. Um, and just, just the love of the music of language sort of comes straight from, from Pinsky. So it was really cool to have him on the show. For all of us. So thank you for arranging that. Yeah. It was really one of those bucket list. Well, my bucket list now is to get into his poetry folder. Oh, that <laughs> And on your poetry shelf, <laughs> yeah. your permanent shelf. There's, well, th there's a <laughs> candidate right there for sure. Um, why, why don't you tell us about this new book? Um, it's um, Alone in the Heart or Alone in the House of My Heart. And um, so, so we talked about um, just, I think one of the greatest titles of a book is um, A Place So Small It Cannot Be Seen. Is that the title? Your other oh, my other book, A Place So Deep Inside so America deep inside It Can't America. Be Seen. Yeah, yeah, I love that title. It's one of the best titled books. Um, and so that's all about the, the culture in your area. What do you, what is this new book about? How, how, how would you describe it? Well, I, I think it's, it's a, um, 
it carries on because I, I always write about where I'm from. It, but I think maybe this one um, is broader and it takes on a few more topics. I get, I feel like I get political in this particular book. And uh, I brought a couple tonight to share that I think are political. Um, and there's also a section uh, dedicated to my mother. And when um, when I joined you on Rattle last time, I had mentioned that my mother had uh, passed during COVID, and I was not allowed to see her, and it was tough. And um, and so of course I wrote about it. And so uh, those poems are in this book. Um, I talk a bit about everyone, my father, uh, my my uh, son, um, and my people. I mean, it's always about my people. So I don't stray far from the culture. I don't know that this one feels as thick uh -huh. in my culture, maybe. Like maybe I've gotten out a bit, which I have. <laughs> so maybe, that, maybe that's reflecting in these poems. Uh, so, I hope so. Yeah. So let, let's hear but, one. What do you want to read first? Okay. Well, I was thinking about reading uh, To Save a Life, which is on page 42. Okay. Yeah. Like I said, I'm feeling a little political tonight. And, um, and I know Appalachia gets a bad rap, uh, when uh when we t when it comes to addiction and i don't think we do enough talking about addiction in this country anyway and then when people start saying well in appalachia everybody's either drunk or on drugs that makes me very upset because being drunk or being on drugs is a national issue it's not an appalachian issue and it needs to be addressed and it hasn't been even though we've had some marvelous particularly women writers who have <laughs> ferreted out the information about what's going on with the drug problem in America. Um, so that's all I'll say. That's probably enough to get me in trouble. Um, <laughs> so this is to save a life. We did what we could, hid the bottles, drove what was left of him deep into the yawning hollow, built a campfire, drank water from a long-handled gourd, a galvanized bucket. We set up tents for triage, counted his breaths, worried over irregular heartbeats, sweats, persistent vomiting, his jacked up adrenal system. We waited, listened for a canvas zipper in the night, each long, slow pull, a call to duty, our legs folding over duct-taped camp stools tucked tight around the fire, his gut-fucked stories stenched in blood and munitions, overpowering the wood smoke's curling carbons. Crows haunched on branches behind our backs, sentinels silent as we wept, we doused him in creek water, a sharp sheen of moon over our bones, recited communions, sang songs our mothers taught us in the womb. Every neighbor dog and coyote within earshot barking hill to valley. Some people think they don't deserve to be loved. Every story scratched into the dirt and ache. That week, down in the lower 40, we all got born again. It was hard to say who saved who.
Yeah, wow. To save a life. Such a beautiful poem, Carrie. And again, that's um, from Alone in the House of My Heart, which um, with a resolution you can't quite see on screen, the title. But um, maybe if I hold it up this way, it'll be better. Um, <laughs> yeah. There you go. It's this right here. Yeah, it's it's, it's this type, dark time of night for me where the I only have our lights now because the sun's down. Um, exactly. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, that was wonderful, Carrie. Um, and and so so let me ask, like, what you've been up to lately? Because is uh, you have a second term, I think, as Ohio poet laureate, right? Did I remember that right? I- I did. Yes, I was I was reappointed. And so um, I've been doing lots of traveling now because, um, you know, COVID's uh, more manageable. And of course, I, I'm boosted out the wazoo. I like to say I've had every booster I can possibly get. And uh, and just since the end of September, I've traveled to North Carolina. I've traveled uh, uh uh, many times to Central Ohio, which is my state, Ohio, to work with uh, Central Ohio teens there with my arts residency at the Wexner Center in Columbus, Ohio. Um, I'm leaving for Dodge Poetry Festival uh, day after tomorrow, which I'm really excited about. Um, yeah, so I was I'm, trying to trying to inch you toward. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm a festival <laughs> poet this year, and I'm just thrilled. I'm going to be doing two events each day, and um, I get to meet all these wonderful. Well meet that's pushing it but i'm going to get to see them uh which is going to be so exciting and hear hear them read and um and i'm also excited in january i'm going back into the prisons and uh you know providing uh writers workshops uh for for inmates who um have recovered from addiction uh you know that's kind of my focus Mm -hmm. and um, i'm just really, really excited about that. And I'll continue to work with the teens uh, throughout this school year. And I have a, just a ton of readings and workshops and things lined up. And I'm grateful for every single one of them. Yeah. Truly. Well, it's just, it's inspiring as it always is to hear all the stuff you do, just the wonderful things and all the energy you have. And I just, I, I love hearing the list of all of what's going on. So <laughs> thanks for sharing that. Um, let's hear uh, one more poem. Okay, well, thank you again so much for having me. And for all of you listening to all the all the readers uh, that are going to come after me, I appreciate y'all listening too. Um, so I'm still on the high horse here about my political feelings. And we know the midterms are coming up. And so I have to say a poem. I need to recite a poem in honor of women and our bodies. Um, so this is page 46, an Appalachian woman's guide to beer drinking. Belly up, you beautiful thing, strong-legged and twang-drawled, raised holler to mountaintop, rich in root, fed on lard biscuits and bacon gravy. Lick at the long-neck bottle, your tongue a divination, your face a fist, two sweat moons where breasts ache to swing and sway. Unclasp those bindings and all who contrive them. Their straps and underwires camouflaged in carlicues, icy hands groping. The pitiful way you must offer bits of your body, your land, to earn so little as a pine split stool at their stars and stripes table. Drink to the twisted torch of freedom washed down with fracking waste, red clay dust, the bitter soot of coals. See you later, sucker. Say hell yes to the crack and splinter of misogynist pulpits. 
Give rise, your manifesto, each word draping the bud point of every bow. Your body never again obliged. Your song, a rush of wings, like souls releasing. Oh, that was a beautiful poem, Carrie. That was, and a great title, as uh, someone mentioned, An Appalachian Woman's Guide to Beer Drinking. And that's, again, from Alone in the House of My Heart. I love both those poems that you shared. And you've always had a great storytelling ability, but the music there, someone says there's Pinsky-like music in there. It's, it's richer than the last book. Um, it's, it's wonderful. So thanks so much for sharing that, Carrie. I'm looking forward to reading the rest. Thank you so much, Tim. Thank you all for having me here tonight. I really appreciate it. I can't wait to hear everybody else. I'm going to say bye now. Awesome. Thanks, Carrie. Talk to you later. Bye. That was Carrie Gunter Seymour once again. You can find Carrie um, on her website, which is CarrieGunterSeymourPoet.com. Another, just like Robert Pinsky, her name with poet at the end.com. And uh, Carrie is uh, K R I and then Gunter, G U N T E R, Seymour, S E Y M O U R, poet.com. So find her website and pick up a book of or a copy of Alone in the House of My Heart there. So um, this is the open lines, though. So we're going to actually do open lines. And um, somebody on the Zoom call mentioned that they, I think it was Matt Mooney here, mentioned that he's hearing two. If you're on the Zoom, only listen through Zoom. So shut off your YouTube stream. Just turn off that. If you're just watching on YouTube or Facebook, just watch on YouTube or Facebook. If you come on and share a poem, only listen through Zoom because otherwise there'll be a delay. It'll be confusing. So um, in that double that double voice, you'll hear like five seconds apart. If you're on so, the Zoom, uh, yep. only listen through yeah. Zoom. Yeah, so... Um, and keep yourself on mute until uh, it's your turn. Well, Matt Moon, yeah, Matt, yeah, what's up, Matt? Yeah, Tim, I'm hearing odd voices. Yeah, exactly. So that's what I'm saying right now. I'm going to mute you. But, um, but yeah, so, so turn off the original stream where you were. So turn off um, what you were listening to on YouTube or Facebook and just be on Zoom because otherwise there'll be two. So I'm going to do that. Um, and hopefully uh, Matt can figure that out. But but yeah, so only listen through Zoom. Turn off everything else, every other application on your computer except for Zoom. Um, if you're going to be here sharing a poem and just listen through Zoom and that's it. Turn everything else off. Shut out. Sh- cl- sh- close your web browser and that'll take care of it. Um, let's go to... Um, oh, wait, first, the open lines. I have an open lines poem. The prompt for this week, I'm getting a little all discombobulated. The prompt for this week is right here. It was... Um, an adhandi, an adhadi, is a unique kind of Tamil poetry constructed such that the last or ending word of each fr- verse becomes the first word of the next verse. In some instances, the last word of the series of verses becomes the beginning of the very first verse, thus making the poem a true garland of verses. Um, andha means end and adhi means beginning. So that is the thing. And my, uh, my little one here, and this was literally a five-minute poem, but, but we can pretend it wasn't. Um, this is I noticed. Here's my little Adhandi. I noticed on their crumbling cottage steps an apple, an apple sliced and browning, browning into what into being what the stone will be will be cottage steps on their crumbling. That is my little tiny poem for this week. But let's see what you have. I'm sure you have something much more interesting to share. First of all, let us go to, I'll just go in the order they appear on my screen. We'll go to Carla Schwartz first. And uh, one poem limit tonight, because we, we're already through um, 96 minutes of the show. So, hey, Carla, how you doing? So far, a fantastic night, and I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, yeah, we're happy to have you for sure. So what do you have that you'd like to share? Um, I have an on. Yeah, it's such a hard <laughs> word to say. I'm not really sure why. It seems like it shouldn't be. 
But um, uh, and um, uh, and I also missed last week because of you know the the time change. I so anyway, got it. And uh, late. Yeah. And so this is called Golden Hours. Okay. The golden hours of October last for only minutes. This minute, the slanted light so deep it sings. It sings the tune of yellow glow upon a stone. The golden stone, a sparkling jewel until the sun goes down. Down below the distant trees and into shadow. Shadow of dusk, of night, of dawn. Dawn's light that kisses the stone and dresses its quotidian shades, shades that pale until near four, when once more they begin to glow under the light of the next golden hour. Ah, excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that, Carla. It was golden hours, and, and it swings around to the back like, um, like the, uh, she mentioned is a possibility. Excellent poem. Thanks. It's always, always a pleasure, Carla. Me too. Thank you. Yep. Good night. Take, take care. It's Kyla Schwartz with Golden Hours. And next, let's go to uh, Dick Westheimer. Hey, Tim. Hey, Dick. How are you doing today? Well, I double dose tonight. I just, I'm in reverse order. I love Carla's poem. I love Carrie's reading, which I, I get to hear a lot because Ohio. Uh-huh. And, um, and the interview was just wonderful. So thank you. Thank you for a great evening. Yeah, definitely my pleasure. Yeah. Um, uh, so I sent you um, at my on uh, Hadi, Hadi, um, which was also a poet's respond poem uh, called "Gun Man Boy America Numb." Excellent. Yeah, great title. I have it up right here. Go ahead whenever you're ready. Okay, and it's about the the basic story is the uh, the headline read "Gunman Kills Five in North Carolina." And then you read it was a boy. Mm, Ouch. Yeah. The headline reads like a cliche. The cliche gunman kills five. Only the killing this time was done by a boy. Gun boy is not a cliche yet. Yet when the next blood is let by a boy with a gun, a gun with the name America etched on its stock, I will be numb. Numb once again to the news of bodies strewn on another street, another street in somewhere America, unless that headline reads here. Yeah, great poem. Thanks for sharing that. That was Gunman Boy, or Gunman Boy, America Numb. Yeah, excellent poem as always. Thanks for sharing that, Richard. Yeah. Thanks. Yep. Thanks for the evening. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Take care. Yeah, uh, Richard Westheimer with a, um, a both a prompt and a poet respond poem. Let's go to um, Angela Gartner since uh, here she is. Hey, Angela, how are you doing today? Good. How are you doing, Tim? I'm doing great. Yeah, it's great to see you again. It's been a little bit. Um, so what do you have to share with us? Well, um, I think... Um, I wasn't sure which one to share. <laughs> um, I guess I'll share because uh, the seasonal signs are kind of going on. So even if I come back next week, I can just do that. <laughs> so, 
speaking if that's it. But um, I kind of reworked this poem. It was actually a poet's respond poem for a while, but then like I just kind of, you know, I I reworked it just to kind of it's it's very short. So okay. Uh, it, um, it's the between the living and the dead. And what was the new story that inspired it? Well, it 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 was about um, there was a pig that they um, brought back to life. Um, it was like scientists who brought a pig back to life. They were, you know, it was they were, you know, trying to see kind of how the heart kind of pumps blood and everything. Oh, yeah. So, mm-hmm. and but what's funny? So I kind of took out like the the pig part of it but you know i was just i kind of went in another direction with it um but i i still think it works you know without the pig so <laughs> interesting well let's hear it i'm looking forward to it between the living and dead it's like the flower in a pot with leaves a brown edges spilling over the sides put in the sun to revive Sprinkle it with water. Pray it will grow. If it wakes, we sing. It dies again. We left it alone. Oh, very touching. That was a great poem. That's Between the Living and Dead. Thanks so much for sharing that, Angela. Thank you. Good to see you guys. Yeah, yeah, good (laughs) to see you too. I I hate to follow all these wonderful poets. I'm like, Oh, you're a wonderful poet too. So I'm I'm glad to have you here. Thanks, Angela. (laughs) Thanks. Have a great day. You too. Bye. It was Angela Gartner with uh, Between the Living and Dead. Next, let's go to, I think uh, Chelsea is a first-time um, sh- um, poet here. Um, Chelsea Palermo. Hi. Hey, Chelsea. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Hey, how are you? I'm glad I'm I... great. It... Yeah, where are you calling from? Oh, I'm in Jersey. Excellent. Oh, perfect for, for Robert. Yeah. Do you know Robert? <laughs> uh, I don't know him personally, but uh-huh. I've seen him. I saw him at Monmouth University a few weeks ago doing the poems and the jazz. Oh, it really? Was oh, I, so I've never weird. seen that, but I would love it. Yeah. Oh, you would. Yeah. It, I have some recorded. I don't know. <laughs> it <laughs> was think, really good. Yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah, so, so what do you have that you'd like to share? I got to find it now. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. I just took it from my email. Was was there a prompt? I, I didn't um, do the there's prompt. A, so what it is, you can share whatever you want. Um, oh, cool. But we have like prompts. We have poems about current events, recently published poems, or just whatever you want to share. It's totally open lines, but one poem okay. max and like a two-page max, I'd say. Is the, the okay, rules. cool. Yeah, this isn't, um, doesn't, it's less than two pages, so that Perfect. works. Okay. Okay. Other than that, it doesn't fall into. Okay, so I'll just read the poem. Yeah. Um, until I sat on top the splintered monkey bars, infinite hours, peering four square into neighbor's yards, dogs barking and breeding at the corner fence. Rakes left to rust, slanted sheds, dying grass, aluminum pool filled, clear blue water I longed to dive into. Until afraid to climb back down, I'd call for my mother. Sliding glass door closed, smoking cigarettes at the beige counter, my mother head down, reading police blotters, obituaries, scanning for names she once knew. Until breathless, until certain she could not hear me. Would not help, I mustered reserves to crawl towards the ladder and step down backwards. Until outgrown and a stranger unchanged the seesaw, loaded the swings, slipped the slide onto the back of a pickup truck. Until Bronson, whose son would die of an overdose decades later, would come calling at the door late nights. Until I er- learned the art of the turndown. Can we curse? I'm yeah, gonna. Yeah. 
okay, it's coming. <laughs> I don't know. And John would fuck the neighbor down the street and have a baby, all the teen moms to be on the block. And the drunk would watch the young teen who gifted me old clothes and brown paper bags changing through her bedroom window. And Stephanie would slam out the door, scream, clanging, and light a cigarette, busting down the block. Until summer nights when I climbed out my bedroom window and sat on a slanted garage roof while my mother watched true crime, America's Most Wanted, the volume inescapable. Until I crawled into the night for some semblance of silence, my mother still waiting for the release of the man who killed the girl who looked just like her, body never found on the verge of teenage years. Sometimes smoking pot, rolled joints in my pocket, sometimes watching the neighbors come home under the stars, some new moon, some new transit, listening to the street, the long branch gliding leaves along the gutter, a housewife scream, her husband banging furniture, slamming bodies, feral cats fighting in the weeds, sometimes sounding like lost children in the night, forlorn, looking for a way back home. Until the story unfolded across the newsprint, murder released, my mother shook, the girl who lived down the street dead now 40 years, my mother calling her back in her mind, still searching, still remembering a man, a car with broken locks who stopped her on the sidewalk and how my mother, 12, kept walking until she made it home. Wow, that was a great poem. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, yeah, the rhythm and the, 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 the reading of it, just beautiful. Thanks so much. Thanks. Yeah, thank good you. stuff. Thanks for joining, cool. uh, Chelsea, and uh, hope great. you do it again. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that was Until by Chelsea Palermo. Um, next up, let's go to Audrey. Hello, everybody. Hey, Audrey, how are you doing tonight? Oh, just happy to be here. Yeah, well, we're happy to have you. Um, so what Thank do you have you. for us today? Okay. Um, this is an oldie. At the Montefiore Cemetery, 2015. Curious that theirs is the only one in this row of staunch granite slabs that tilt. It stood straight until she arrived to lie beside him. But that's how life was with her, like standing on the head of a pin or on a bit of brittle ledge above the falls. No way to know if you were heading up with the wind or down to the rocks. So, Dad, for those who visit, if they knew Mother, they would understand that we rode swift currents with our arms extended like the flying Walenda's balancing poles and practice daily the crossing of raging waters with well-executed steps. Oh, that was wonderful. That was uh, at the Montefiore Cemetery 2015, Audrey Friedman. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks, Audrey. Beautiful lines in that poem. I loved it. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, take care. You too. Um, next up, let's go to um, Jennifer Lee Wang. Hey, Tim. Hey, Jen. How are you doing tonight? I'm good. Um, so I'm going to read. This was actually, I think, last week's Poet Respond, since I had to miss last week's yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, battle. Um, yeah, this was inspired by Constance Wu's memoir that she recently released and oh, kind yeah. of the revelations that, like, her whole, uh, like, that blow up on Twitter 
there was just so much more behind just her being unhappy. She was actually like um, harassed and assaulted and just, so I am um, just being an Asian American uh, femme. I related a lot to kind of what she's talked about with her book. So I mm-hmm. wrote a poem about it. Yeah, yeah, let's hear it. Okay. I have a tiger. Just because I play a tiger mom on TV and am equally fierce in real life doesn't mean I can't be hurt. Tigers are endangered after all, being hunted by men and sensitive to habitat destruction. Despite being a hustler and a trailblazer for Asian American girl bosses, or a diva as some would claim, I still have wounds and weaknesses. My fairy tale ended with the last cut and I've relented to men with power because even crazy rich Asian women can lose the fortune especially since less than 1% of us reach that top spot in the company, despite being at, in the top of our graduating class. A victim is not a model minority, and a survivor is a problem for making a scene. But I've had enough of being silent and supposedly grateful, so, so I'll sharpen my claws and tongue and carve my happy ending to my story. Excellent. Thanks so much for that. Great ending there and that poem. I have a tiger, uh, Jennifer Thank Lee Wang. Yeah, thanks so much for, for sharing that. Um, let's see. Next up, we will go to, um, let's go to Brent Stoffer. So he's not last for some reason. Brent is like almost always last. Hey, Brent, either. Maybe he has to go last cause he's not ready. Yeah. No, 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 I think I'm, <laughs> there you go. Am I here? Yeah. How you doing today, Brent? There we go. All right, cool. I'm good. I'm good. I, uh, Robert Pinsky is, uh, is one of my inspirations too. Uh-huh. <clears throat> um, the uh, Jersey Rain was one of the first uh, books that, that just bowled me over from the first page to the last. And yeah, it was one of the first books I think I bought myself. I didn't have to for a class because I bought um, The Figured Wheel, which I've been carrying with me for yeah. since that class. And I bought that just because it was a new book that he wrote. So it was one of the first. Uh, maybe it came out of Nizio was the first, I think. But anyway. Yeah, yeah that's really cool. It's really cool. <clears throat> Uh, and 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 now uh, look at me. I'm on the same podcast. <laughs> you <Robert> are. <laughs> you definitely are. <laughs> Live from the garage. Oh, that's, too. that's right. <laughs> that's, maybe that's be the title of my memoir. It should be. I think. I think it's a great title. Live from the garage. <laughs> but um, so I did a uh, I did a prompt poem. Mm-hmm. Um, as usual, I put it off to the last minute and was very much feeling the pressure um, of that fact. And um, so that's what I started to write about. Excellent. Yeah, let's hear it. All right, deadline. The hour, after lying in the grass a long while, is now rushing toward me headlong. Long ago, I told myself that soon I'd have to get ready. Ready for the sun to sink into a cloudy puddle on the driveway and hide under the dark red leaves. The leaves flung themselves from the trees rather than face the storm, stalking the unseen hills like the Lord looking for Jonah. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. I don't blame him. Look at me, shivering now before the frightful mouth, that dark yawning maw filled with sharp seconds of the furiously approaching deadline hour. <laughs> that, that was great. That was uh, Brent Stoffer with Deadline. I love the, the way and, you, where you went with that. 
a very surprising <laughs> turn. <laughs> and 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 then it and then it came upon me, and we're here. <laughs> there you go. And I, I know that. I, yeah. I didn't have time to revise or anything. <laughs> yeah, well, I know the feeling, especially today, because I have um, my rule at four thirty my time. I have to be done with the poem. And it was 421 yeah. when I started thinking about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, but, uh, you did a phenomenal well, job thank of you, giving thank that. You, thank you. Well, you did too. Thank you, sir. <laughs> uh, thank you. All right. Take care. All right. Yep. Thanks, bud. Thanks, Tim. Bye. Bye-bye. Um, let's go next to um, Janthi Rongen. Hi, Tim. Hey, Janthi. How are you doing tonight? Good. Uh, so I have also written an Antadi poem. So you say it much better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what is very funny is uh, this Tamil language. That That's my language. Is it? Um, yeah. And so it uh, it has got four different sounds, which is represented by only one letter. Oh, you wow. know, like mm-hmm. D and D-H, T and T-H, all four of them are represented by one oh, wow. uh, one letter. Yeah, so this poem is called The Folds of the Brain. Um, the 40-foot dog tether is all tangles. Shorter now, it halts the canine's reach of far fringes, limiting his scent discoveries and banning his squirrel rush. Rush of dementia has caked the plaque. Smaller now, the brain synapses have weaned, limiting her once lucid senses and canning her honed logic. Logic helps me untangle the twists of leash and I thread and unthread till the tight restraint gives in, bit by bit, unwraps. But uncoiling within the cranium is a gyri and sulci futility. Very interesting. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Jan. The, the folds of the brain. And, you know, I always love poems rooted in science, so that was wonderful. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I was thinking about those uh, last two words, which are technical, you know, gyri and uh, sulci. Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent. I'm I so guess they're yeah. short enough to fit in. Perfect. Yeah, perfect. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Yep. Good night. Um, let's go to um, let's go to Carolyn Cod. Hello. Hi, Carolyn. How are you doing tonight? Okay. Um, I have a um. It's a prompt poem, but it's from prompts from um, ways back about portraits. They uh-huh. had to do with portraits. And that got me thinking about Lincoln, since he's my favorite person of all time, just about. <laughs> and then with the current events lately, it makes me think more about him, too. Uh-huh. So um, so I wrote this. It's called Lincoln's Tears. Okay. There are many portraits of me. It seems people like my looks. I know I'm not handsome, but they say I have a striking, rugged demeanor. Perhaps, even though I was often tired and troubled, I project a picture of thoughtfulness and strength. Now, here I am, with my larger-than-life image set in stone. Folks contemplate my countenance as I gaze out at them. 
You know that I presided over terrible times of divisive thoughts and actions resulting in civil war. I struggled and suffered greatly to preserve this country, which I loved so much. Now again, in these days, my spirit is saddened. I've heard and sensed horrible news of unrest, divisiveness, threats of violence, and violence itself rising up all across this land. My ears and eyes are burning. You may not be able to see them, but tears are rolling down my face. I am crying, but I have hope, hope that your better angels will appear, they, that they, speaking truth, will help you heal those deep wounds and divisions. I have left behind many thoughts and words of mine used in my dealings with the struggles of those times. Now you must try to find your own words of healing and unity. But if you can't, use mine. These tears of stone are very painful. Please search for and follow your better angels so I can stop crying. Oh, wonderful poem. That was Lincoln's Tears um, by Carolyn Cobb. Thanks so much for, for sharing that, Carolyn. And could, I, I, yeah. could I do my little mini poem? Yeah, that's a, yeah there's a tiny two-liner. Let's do that, too. It's just five, ten words. Yeah, go and ahead. It's, it's almost kind of a psyche, I think, because yeah. it's based on my experience and also some research and that I know has been done on the effect of um, classical music and other music on our brains and on our bodies in general. Yeah, go ahead. So it's just um, classical music in the air. I feel my neurons dancing. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I love that two-liner. Thanks for sharing that, Carolyn, okay. and, and everything. Okay, thanks. Yep, take care. Um, Carolyn Cod with, uh, with uh, the, the short poem and then Lincoln's Tears as well. Um, I think we have one poet left on the Zoom, which is Mike Bales. Evening. I like last week. I saw it later on, but I was working at the time. Um, and Robert Pinsky is a guy I used to follow a lot, along with uh, Philip Levine. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, very related poets, I'd say. Um, I emailed a revision of this to you today. Uh -huh. One passage leads to another. Okay, let me pull it up. Okay, here we go. Yep, I have it. Um, it's kind of where I am at life from these poems. Uh -huh. One passage leads to another. A soft rain falls. A passage as seasons change. And one lamp shines as I write the next story. The next story is a whisper, a reflection of my life. And as it unfolds, the night lies in shadows. In shadows a dream, the one in many lives I've lived, I live again, seamlessly in solitude in the middle of the night. The night lies still, touched by an October rain, summer turning into fall, another scene shown, nature's refrain. Yeah, excellent. Love the rhymes there. Uh, that was, uh, Thanks. Yeah, Mike Bales with one passage leads to another. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, take care. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Let's see. So that is the, the poets we have on the Zoom. I wonder if, um, yeah, Nivedita and Ted have both sent um, uh, poems. I wonder if Nivedita sent a video this time. Yep, yep, Nivedita did. So let's have let's play Nivedita's video. Um, and Matt, Maho Matt, uh, Matt Mooney, it looks like you're trying to come in on the, uh, on the Zoom, but it's not connecting. So if you... Okay. Yeah. Well, we can't do it otherwise. And maybe next week, Matt. I'm sorry. It's late where you are, though. I'd love to get you on. 
You are coming through. Yeah. Hey, let me put you on. Long last. <laughs> yeah, Matt Mooney. Okay. Do you, do, do you mind if I read an awful short poem? Yeah, we'd for love to have you dreams. since you waited so long. Yeah, for sure. For I'm glad to have you. Dreams. Yeah. It's called when and everybody they might have um, um, sweet dreams tonight, and I really enjoyed being with you. When dreams are spun, dark-haired, slow-eyed angel of the night, you appear to me, arms outstretched, reaching up your hands behind my head. Not quite embracing me, but face to face with everything I craved, but had no right. I held you in the dream, not mine to take. Our looks were truly locked in laser lines. Then I said, to live your love life to the full, and that from the observatory of my soul. I'd be happy just to see you come and go, till perhaps another dream of you is spun. Tenderly you asked if my heart felt pain. Yes, at times seeing things you say and do, and how you grace each exotic place afar in your story unfolding in the book of you. Yeah, excellent. Thanks so much, Matt. It was great to have you be able to share a poem and have it work out right. Yeah, that was wonderful. Get going eventually. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, great. Thanks a lot. I hope you can join again, even though it's so late. Sometimes we do have early earlier shows if there's a guest from Europe or, or India or whatever. So maybe you can join us then too without having to I think that I feel I feel so fresh. It must have been very refreshing because I feel really fresh. Excellent. Well, maybe you can join us this late again too. Thanks, Matt. It's great to meet you. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. As Matt Mooney with uh, When Dreams Are Spun. And that's the last uh, guest we're going to have on Zoom. So I'm going to turn off the Zoom. And uh, you can watch the very end of the show on YouTube. Um, but here is the prompt for this week. Um, the prompt for this week, or not the prompt, I mean the Saiku for this week. Sorry. I'm not going to skip the Saiku. What are you thinking? The Saiku for this week. I actually like my Saiku much better than uh, than my my poem. <laughs> But um, this is a pre- from a press release from uh, Bingham um, and Women's Hospital from uh, Mass General Bingham, Brigham, Brigham, sorry, Brigham. And um, basically, this is about how um, proof that eating food late at night um, makes you gain weight. So they took, um, in this study, they took people and, and they just had them have everything matched up. So they had, um, you know, the amount of food they ate. The um, every other aspect of it, how much they slept, everything else, and they measured certain metabolism markers, and they found that actually, if you eat late at night, you actually you go through this metabolism process in which you're making fat more and your metabolism moving more slowly. So it's kind of like you're in like storage mode when you eat snacks at night, and you're in like use it mode when you eat snacks during the day, or, or just any food in general. And so that's sort of solving a long time mystery of whether or not that was true, whether or not late night snacking is actually unhealthy for you. And apparently it is. It's more you, you, um, you know, pack on the, the extra weight um, for those calories rather than using them. So um, that was the, uh, the poem for this or the news story that inspired this poem. And here's my Saiku for this week. There we go. Uh, Saiku, harvest moon, never quite feeling full. Harvest moon, never quite feeling full. 
That is the Saiku for this week, and that is the show for this week. Once again, a really wonderful one. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. Um, it's been a, it was a pleasure to talk to both Robert Pinsky and uh, Carrie Gunter Seymour, two of my favorite poets in the world. It's been just a pleasure to have them on the show. Here's the prompt for next week. The prompt is, write a poem about a landmark in your area. How easy is that? And, um, and given that, that Robert Pinsky's book is um, Jersey Breaks, it's about growing up in, um, in that area of uh, New Jersey, um, Long Branch, New Jersey, I should say, um, find a landmark in your area like that and write a poem about it. That is next week's prompt. Next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be um, Cindy Veach. Um, Cindy has a poem in the newest issue of Rattle and a new book too, Her Kind. Um, and she's going to be just a wonderful poet. I love her poem that we published. Don't know much more about her, which will be fascinating. I l- kind of love it when I don't know the poet very well. Um, I know her poems are great, though. And uh, her newest book, Her Kind, is what we're going to be going over. That is Railcast number 165 with the prompt. Write a poem about a landmark in your area. That's going to be next Monday, October 24th, the usual time, Monday, October 24th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope you have a great rest of the week, and I will talk to you soon. Good night.